Thank you for listening to our church podcast, where it is our joy to share helpful truths from the Bible. We pray this serves as one more tool to help develop leaders within our church and community who love and honor Jesus and reveal it by loving others. If you have any questions or comments about any of the messages, we invite you to join us on any Wednesday, 6 p.m., for a group discussion on the passages and sermons found here. As we continue reading in the book of Luke, our scripture reading this morning will be found in the book of Luke, Chapter 3, we will read verses 21 and 22. Uh, We will attempt to read them all together. And would you all please stand and we read these verses. That's Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. Now when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also being baptized and praying, the heaven was opened. And the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven, which said, Thou art my beloved son, in thee I am well pleased. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be here today to get more spiritual food. In fact, we hope to renew our faith in you by hearing your words. Uh, Every day that uh, we hear the gospel, every day that we hear the word, the Bible, we cherish those words, and try to form our living to conform to the words that we read. Thank you, Father. We ask your blessing be upon the pastor as he delivered the message. We ask this in our Lord, Savior's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. Well, last week we uh, looked at Luke's account of the ministry of John the Baptist. And as you know, we're going through a series studying the book of Luke, calling it Journey with Jesus. And this is really the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. We saw last week that John the Baptist was sent uh, from God to preach that the Messiah was coming and that they must uh, prepare for his arrival by repentance. That was really the theme of John's message and the the theme of our our message last week, Uh, that repentance is an essential component of genuine conversion, and you must repent to have your sins forgiven. And that was the message of John the Baptist. John further preached that as a demonstration of your repentance, uh, that you should be baptized. That was, this is all of what we talked about last week, that, that uh, baptism is not the thing, right? Baptism isn't what saves you. Baptism has nothing to do with that, but it is a, an outward demonstration of what's true in your heart, uh, that you are uh, turning from sin to God, and it's, it's supposed to um, symbolize an inward cleansing from sin, that you're committing yourself to follow the Lord, and that's, that's baptism. And so, Uh, That leads us to a question that I hope you thought of as we read our text this morning. If baptism, as we saw last week, is all about repentance, it's a way of showing your need for cleansing and a display of your personal repentance from sin, then why in the world is Jesus getting baptized? That's a good question, and I I hope that's one that you thought of. It seems odd. Why would Jesus be baptized? We see in verse 21 that it says, uh, when all the people were being baptized, it came to pass Jesus also being baptized and praying the heaven was open. And so uh, Jesus came to be baptized by John the Baptist. And if that's hard for you to understand, and if you're wondering what in the world is he doing getting baptized, Jesus was sinless. He doesn't need to repent. Uh, John had a similar question. Matthew, uh, Matthew's account of the same story gives us a few more details. Matthew 3.13 says, Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. But John forbade, forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? So John is, is tracking right with us. He's like, what are you doing being baptized? I mean, 
He recognized that Jesus uh, did not need to repent, and so why, is, why, why are you coming to be baptized? That's a good question to be asking. And so Jesus gives the response in verse 15. Uh, he says to him, suffer it to be so now. And the word suffer uh, doesn't have anything to do with suffering. It's an old English word. It simply means allow. Okay, so allow it to be so now. Let me get baptized. For thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him, or then he allowed him. Now, I'm going to make a confession this morning, if that's okay with you. I'm not seeking absolution or anything, but uh, when I used to read this passage, I always thought that that's not really much of an explanation. Uh, Thus it becomes us to fulfill all righteousness. That's like saying, uh, just baptize me, John. It's the right thing to do. Well, that doesn't really explain it to me anyway. It's like that that leaves a lot lot to be uh, explained. And so John's asking a good question of Jesus. Why do you need to be baptized? And Jesus is like, John, just, just baptize me. Just allow it. You know, it's the right thing to do. And so it reminded me of when I was in Bible college, um, I, I studied a, a pastoral theology class. And so in order to, do, to graduate, you had to take Hebrew and Greek classes, which is the, the languages the Bible was originally written in. And uh, my Hebrew teacher, first of all, we had Hebrew at eight o'clock in the morning. I mean, can you think about anything worse than that? It's terrible. Uh, Hebrew is a super confusing language. I loved Greek. I mean, ate it up, absolutely loved it. Hebrew is terrible. It was like, for one thing, it's backwards. I don't know if you know that. They, they read and write from, from right to left, uh, which really threw me off. I'd do my homework backwards and then, you know, have to start all over again. And uh, there's no vowels in Hebrew, okay? The, the vowels are implied, <laughs> whatever that means. So basically, if you grow up uh, speaking or reading Hebrew, you just kind of know how to pronounce it. It's not actually written there. And uh, there's all these little dots and symbols that can totally change the meaning of a word. You can have two words that are spelled exactly the same and there's a dot over one and it changes it. You know, just crazy stuff like that. And I remember I used to ask uh, my Hebrew teacher all the time, I would say, you know, why is that? Like, who came up with that? Uh, why are there no vowels? You know, what, why? And he would always say to me, and it frustrated me so much, he would always say, I can't tell you why something is. I can only tell you what is. And that always seemed like such a bad answer to me. Like, that doesn't help me at all, you know? It's kind of like uh, when, when your mom tells you, you know, why do I need to do this? Well, because I said so. Okay, well, that doesn't help, you know? I, I want something a little clearer than that. And so uh, when, I would, when I would read this text, it kind of seemed like one of those throwaway answers that doesn't actually answer the question. But I, I think... I think I missed something in my previous readings of this. I think Jesus' answer actually does explain the objection well. Okay, I don't think God is up in heaven thinking, you know, we really should have clarified that better. Okay, God's really happy with how the Bible turned out. I don't know if you know that. He's he has no 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 qualms about it. So uh, I think when when John asks this question, Jesus isn't just saying, you know, shut up and baptize me, John. I think there's a little more there. So he says here. Uh, for thus it it becomes us to fulfill all righteousness. And I think the answer to the question lies in the doctrine of imputation. I don't know if you've ever heard of this. Uh, You might call it imputed righteousness. This is a nice theological fancy word that simply has a very simple definition. We're going to explain, explore this uh, in scripture, starting with 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where the Bible says that he, speaking of God, made him, that's Jesus, to be sin for us. So Jesus became sin for us, who knew no sin. Jesus was sinless, he lived a sinlessly perfect life, and he became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Okay, so 
God made Jesus, the Father made Jesus to be sin for us. Uh, The sinless Son of God took our sin upon himself. And that's what we call substitutionary atonement. Again, another fancy 50-cent word there. Uh, Substitutionary atonement, fancy word, very simple definition. Just means when Jesus died on the cross, he died as a substitute. Okay, He took our sins on himself. He bore our sins. He was punished for our sins. He died as our substitute. But look at the rest of the verse. Uh, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So an exchange takes place uh, when you become a Christian. Jesus took your sin on himself when he died on the cross. And when you become a, a Christian, when you repent and believe the gospel, you get the righteousness of Jesus. Okay, let's look at a few more scriptures to clear this up. Isaiah 53, this was a prophecy of Jesus, great prophecy in the Old Testament. Isaiah 53 says, Surely he hath borne our griefs. This is all talking about the cross. When Jesus died, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. That's a big word for sins. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. So there you see Jesus uh, took our sins on himself. First uh, Peter 2 explains this well. Who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that's the cross, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye are healed. So when Jesus died on the cross, uh, he took our sins on himself, and he took the blow that we deserved. When we repent and believe the gospel, we receive the imputed righteousness of Jesus. So just like God pinned our sin on Jesus when he uh, died on the cross and he treated Jesus as if he had lived our sinful lives, when we're saved, God takes the righteousness of Jesus and pins that on us. And he treats us as though we had lived the perfectly righteous life that Jesus lived. Here's a few scriptures on that. Uh, Romans 3 says, "...being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus..." whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, Jesus' righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Philippians 3.9, Paul says, And be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. So we can't earn heaven, right? We all understand that. We can't earn heaven by our own righteousness. We have to have the righteousness of Christ applied to our account. Uh, Romans 4, 6, here's one more. Even as David also described the blessedness of that man, speaking of uh, a person who comes to Christ in salvation, unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works. So there you see the doctrine of imputation there, that God imputes the righteousness of Jesus to us at salvation. And so we think it's a big deal that Jesus died on the cross and he bore our sins, and that's true. It is a, it's a huge deal. Uh, but it's equally important that Jesus lived a sinless and righteous life before he died. He had to in order to save us. If Jesus would have sinned himself, he could not have borne our sins. He, he would have had to pay for his own. This is what Hebrews says, Hebrews 7, For such an high priest became us, speaking of Christ, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. 
uh, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. So Jesus offered himself to pay the price for our sins and he could only do that because he had no sin of his own. Jesus paid a debt that he did not owe because we owed a debt that we could not pay. And if Jesus owed a debt like the rest of us, he wouldn't have been able to pay our debt. Kind of like if, I, if I'm in debt up to my eyeballs, I can't afford to pay your rent, right? I have to have something in order to uh, take on your responsibility. And so for Jesus, death to save us, he had to be sinless. We're saved by his death, his substitutionary death. We're also saved by his righteous life being imputed to us. That's what we call the doctrine of imputation. Both of those aspects are critical to our redemption. And so Jesus' baptism was part of fulfilling all righteousness. Jesus had to live a perfect human life, doing everything that God required of humanity. Everything God commanded people to do, Jesus had to do it. That included being baptized. That included, as we saw a few weeks ago, submitting to his parents, right? As a a little boy, he had to submit to his parents, just like other humans are expected to. That includes going to the temple for Passover, going to the synagogue each Sabbath. These are all things Jesus did. He lived a perfect life, truly. He kept every command that God gave us. Jesus lived as the perfect human. Uh, J. Gresham Machen was a theologian in the early 20th century. He uh, was schooled at Princeton Theological Seminary back before it liberalized. And, uh, and then he helped to found uh, a seminary, the name of its blanking, Westminster Seminary. And uh, he was traveling in North Dakota at a, a speaking engagement. He was very sick, and in fact, he, he ended up dying from this illness. But before he died, he sent one final telegram to his friend John Murray. And Malachi, if you could put that up on the screen. This is a picture of it. It's interesting. You might think about what you would say if you knew you were dying. What would be your last words? What he said was, I'm so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. And those were his final words. He died shortly thereafter. Uh, When theologians speak about the active obedience of Christ, they differentiate between uh, what's known as the active and passive obedience of Christ. So when Jesus dies on the cross and God uh, puts our sins on him and he submits to the, uh, the death on the cross, uh, that's what they call the passive obedience of Christ, how he was our sin bearer. The active obedience of Christ refers to the perfect life of righteousness which Jesus lived. And so what Machen was thankful for on his deathbed was the active obedience of Christ, his perfect life whereby we stand righteous in the sight of God. Not having our own righteousness, but the righteousness of Jesus imputed to us. And as he rightly points out at the end of that statement, there is no hope without it. Uh, Maybe one way to think of this is if Jesus simply died, if he just came, didn't live a life, just died immediately and bore our sins, uh, that might put us in a state of neutrality with God. We no longer have sin. There's no negative there. Uh, But we also had to have uh, an element of positive obedience in our account. We can't just be neutral. And so Jesus' righteousness imputed to our account makes us truly acceptable to God. And so Jesus was baptized because that was a part of fulfilling all righteousness. This was part of the right thing that Jesus had to do to live that perfect human life. Now at this point in the life of Christ, after living 30 years or so in relative obscurity, we really don't have much about Jesus uh, up until this age of around 30. The Father wanted to publicly show the world that Jesus was his son. And as we'll see in just a minute, that's exactly what happens. Uh, But first, I do want to talk a little bit more about baptism. We talked about this last week, and we got into, uh, I'd say, the really important stuff about how baptism symbolizes 
uh, our death, burial, and resurrection with Christ, uh, how it, it's uh, showing the world around us, anyone who's watching us be baptized, that we're repenting of our sins, that we believe the gospel, and it shows a commitment to follow Christ. That's all Romans 6 and a few other texts that we could look at. But I want us also to talk about baptism um, specifically by immersion, the mode of baptism. So as you know, at, at this church, we baptize people by immersion, meaning we totally submerge them underwater and bring them back up. We don't sprinkle. Uh, we don't baptize babies and things of that nature. And I just want to talk about why that is, maybe give some explanation. First of all, obviously, the symbolism is lost if you're sprinkling or pouring, right? If baptism shows uh, the cross, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ, that symbolism is lost if you're just sprinkling water on somebody, okay? So the whole, the whole picture there is gone. Uh, but a simpler answer maybe would be that we follow uh, truly the biblical pattern for baptism. Nowhere in the Bible is someone ever sprinkled. Uh, baptism is always by immersion. And we see this very clearly in Matthew's account, the account that we were just looking at of uh, the baptism of Christ. Matthew 3.16 says, Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water. Okay, that's pretty clear. He was in the water and he came out of the water. That's when the the Holy Spirit descends and so forth. Uh, In John's gospel, we see that immersion was the whole reason John baptized in the Jordan River. Uh, John chapter 3, John also was baptizing in Aenon near to Salem because there was much water there and they came and were baptized. So John baptized at this particular place on the Jordan River because there was much water, meaning the water was deep there. You can put up a picture of that, Malachi. Uh, This is my baptism from a few years ago. This is the Jordan River. It may not be the exact place where John was baptizing. We don't know exactly where that is. Uh, But as you can see, quite a bit of water there. It is fairly deep. And, uh, and this maybe will help you just give you a mental picture of what that would look like. So uh, John wouldn't need a whole lot of water if he was sprinkling, right? This clearly he was immersing people in, in the Jordan River. So there's more we could talk about with infant baptism. Uh, obviously, we're not going to immerse babies in water. So that would be one reason not to baptize babies if we do believe it's by immersion. Uh, but nowhere in Scripture do we see any baby. In fact, nowhere in Scripture do we really see any children clearly being baptized. It seems to be something that was uh, adults being baptized. Also, we talked about last week that, that baptism, a condition of baptism is that you believe the gospel and that you've repented of your sins. I'm not sure how you would know that of a baby. Okay, so that, that would be another thing. If a baby could talk to me and tell me that he's repented of his sins and believes the gospel, then maybe we could talk about that. Uh, but suffice it to say, biblical baptism is by immersion. And it's only for those who are uh, of a mature enough age, at least to profess faith in Christ and demonstrate repentance. And we talked some about this on Wednesday night, those of you who are here, about historically where, where baby baptism came from. And uh, we won't get back into all of that. But Luke chapter 3 Back to our text, it says, When the people were baptized, it came to pass, Jesus also being baptized, and praying. That's an interesting note, that Jesus was praying at his baptism. And we'll talk about that a little bit at the end of our study this morning, but key points in Luke's gospel will find Jesus praying. Jesus was a man of prayer. He prays here at his baptism. He prays at uh, the, his, uh, when he chose the 12 disciples. We see him again praying. He prays at his transfiguration, that moment on the mount when God reveals him to his uh, three closest disciples. And we see him, obviously, you'll remember him praying in the Garden of Gethsemane before the cross. At at key points in the ministry of Christ, Luke specifically points out that Jesus was a man of prayer. And then verse 21, really, and then going into 22, it shows us the, the events that happened at Jesus' baptism. There's three specifically. Verse 21 says, "...the heavens were opened." 
And then verse 22 says, the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him. And thirdly, a voice came from heaven which said, thou art my beloved son and thee I am well pleased. And so the father used Jesus' baptism as a time to publicly show his identity as the son of God. And the father also, of course, expresses his love and pleasure in the son. And so clearly, this is one of those texts that just clearly you see the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, there's, there's the doctrine of the Trinity basically is that God is uh, one God. He is one being existing in three persons. And that's not something that any of us fully wrap our minds around. Uh, but it's, it's plain in the Bible that there are three distinct persons within the Godhead. And this has been... Uh, this was argued very early on in Christianity. The church had to hammer out specifically uh, what we believe on the doctrine of the Trinity. There were a lot of uh, variant views, such as the conflation of the Father, Son, and Spirit into one person. That's known as modalism. Maybe you've heard of oneness Pentecostalism, and it's the same idea today. That's probably where it's most prevalent. The idea that the Father, Son, and Spirit are all the same person. Uh, that God basically uh, can appear as Jesus or as the Spirit, but not both at the same time. They're the same. They're manifestations of one person instead of three separate persons. And so this is, again, clearly this isn't possible in our text, right? You have Jesus being baptized, the Spirit descending, and the Father speaking from heaven all at the same time. These are three separate persons seen in our text. The Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. They aren't distinct, or they are distinct persons. Uh, we see this again when Jesus prays to the Father in, in the Garden of Gethsemane, like I, like I was just mentioning, where he says, Father, not my will, but thine be done. Well, how can that be the same person? Clearly, there's a distinction there. And this isn't, uh, this isn't some golem-like schizophrenia, right, where he's just talking back and forth to himself. So there, there is a sense in which the Father, Son, and Spirit have to be understood as distinct, and yet there's also a sense in which they are one. And so that's the doctrine of the Trinity, that he is one being, three persons. Our statement of faith puts it this way. Uh, God exists in perfect unity as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons in one Godhead, equal in every divine perfection without division of nature, essence, or being, yet distinct with personalities and offices. And so that language of three persons and yet uh, one nature, essence, being without division, uh, that all goes back literally thousands of years, originally really to the Council of Nicaea, Athanasius, and throughout church history. These types of words have been used to try and explain the doctrine of the Trinity. But in our text, we see all three members of the Godhead, and they're, they're pointing to Jesus. They're really drawing attention to Christ, that he is the Son of God. The Father declares from heaven his pleasure and love for the Son, and the Spirit descends in a bodily visible form. Now, when it says like a dove, that's not referring to the form. So the spirit didn't look like a dove. Really, a better way of understanding that is the spirit descended like a dove. So he kind of fluttered down the way a bird you might think of flies down and then rests on a perch. You know, that's what the spirit did. It's not saying it was literally a bird or a bird-like looking figure. Uh, but the spirit was in a, a bodily form, meaning the people could see it. It wasn't uh, just some sense or feeling. They literally could see the Holy Spirit come down from heaven and rest on Christ. And this was a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 42, where it says, Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, mine elect in whom my soul delighteth, I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. And this is a fulfillment of that prophecy where God delights in the Son and then puts his spirit on him. And it seems that at this point, the Holy Spirit comes on Jesus in a unique way and 
remains on him throughout the rest of his life, empowering his ministry. Acts 10, 37 says, That word I say ye know, which was published throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. And so the Holy Spirit empowered Christ's ministry. We'll talk about that a little bit more at the end as well. This was a key point at the life of Christ. If you read the Gospels, this is the launch of his public ministry. After this event, Jesus is then led, we'll see this next week, by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. And then he immediately afterwards begins preaching throughout all Galilee. Luke 4, 1, this will be our first verse we look at next week. Jesus being full of the Holy Ghost. So there you see the Holy Spirit, it wasn't a one-time thing. It remained on him from that point forward. Returned from Jordan right, right after his baptism and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. So the Holy Spirit coming on Christ rested on him and it remained on him throughout the rest of his life. And Jesus carried out the Father's will perfectly on earth through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the events at the baptism of Christ happened as a way for the Father to glorify his Son and to reveal who he was. Anybody who, who saw this take place, I mean, there's no denying who Christ was. I mean, when you hear a voice from heaven saying, this is my Son, I think that's pretty clear. Verse 23, Luke tells us this happened when Jesus was about 30 years old. We can't be too specific on that. That could mean he was 32. You know, we don't really know. But around 30 years of age, uh, Jesus begins his ministry. And now we arrive at the genealogy. And Marvin thanked me so much this morning for not making him read all 77 names at the end of the chapter. Uh, but we're going we're gonna to talk about this just for a minute because it is a part of Scripture and therefore it's important. And we need to study a little bit this morning. And I decided to tack it on here at the end of the sermon because I figured if I told you I was preaching the genealogy next week, no one would show up. And so I just kind of snuck it in the back door here. Uh, but we'll start in verse 23. I'll read these quickly. Jesus himself began to be about 30 years of age. Uh, these are not on the screen, by the way. I didn't type them all out. But you'll, if, if you don't have your Bible, just listen along. You'll get it. At being as was supposed the son of Joseph, which was the son of Heli, which was the son of Mathat, which was the son of Levi, which was the son of Melchi, which was the son of Janna, which was the son of Joseph, which was the son of Matthias, which was the son of Amos, which was the son of Nahum, which was the son of El uh, Esli, which was the son of Nag, which was the son of Math, which was the son of Mattathias, which was the son of Semei, which was the son of Joseph, which was the son of Judah, which was the son of Joanna, which was the son of Rasha, which was the son of Zerubbabel, which was the son of Selathiel, which was the son of Neri, which was the son of Melchi, which was the son of Adai, uh, which was the son of Kozam, which was the son of Almadam, which was the son of Ur, which was the son of uh, Jose, which was the son of Eliezer, which was the son of Joram, which was the son of Mattathat, which was the son of Levi, which was the son of Simeon, which was the son of Judah, which was the son of Joseph, which was the son of Jonan, which was the son of Eliakim, which was the son of Meliel, uh, which was the son of Manan, which was the son of uh, Matatha, which was the son of Nathan, which was uh, the son of David, which was the son of Jesse, which was the son of Obed, which was the son of uh, Boaz, which was the son of Salmon, which was the son of Nason, which was the son of Amminadab, which was the son of Aram, which was the son of Ezram, which was the son of Perez, which was the son of Judah, which was the son of Jacob, which was the son of Isaac, which was the son of Abraham which was the son of Terah, which was the son of Nacar, which was the son of Seruk, which was the son of Regal, which was the son of uh, Phelek, which was the son of Heber, which was the son of Selah, which was the son of Canaan, which was the son of Arxaphat, 
which was the son of Sem, which was the son of Noah, which was the son of Lamech, which was the son of Methuselah, which was the son of Enoch, which was the son of Jared, which was the son of Mahalalel, which was the son of Canaan, which was the son of Enos, which was the son of Seth, which was the son of Adam, which was the son of God. And so Luke traces the genealogy of Jesus all the way back to Adam. And genealogies, we might be super bored by these. I don't know if you get to these in your Bible reading and you're just like, uh, okay, next part. Uh, but these were very important in Jewish culture. And Jesus' genealogical record especially was important because it had to be, uh, there were certain things that had to be right about it in order to fulfill the prophecies of Christ. In order for Christ to be the Messiah, of course, you remember he had to be the son of, or a descendant of Eve. Uh, that's pretty easy. We're all descendants of Adam and Eve, right? But Genesis 3 says that the coming seed of the woman would crush the head of the snake. And so in order to be that promised seed, he had to be a descendant of Adam and Eve. And then he also had to be a descendant of uh, Abraham because God promised Abraham that from his descendants, all the nations of the world would be blessed. And Jesus was a fulfillment of that prophecy. The Messiah also had to be a descendant of Judah. Remember, uh, Jacob has 12 sons, which become the 12 tribes of Israel, uh, sort of Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Asaph. We won't get into all that. Um, but one of those 12 sons was Judah, and it was prophesied that the Messiah would come through the line of Judah. And then lastly, maybe one more important note would be that Jesus had to be a descendant of David. We talked about this before, but God had promised David that one would come in his lineage who would rule on the throne and establish his kingdom forever. And so if Jesus was truly the Messiah, he has to be able to show that he's a descendant of Adam, Abraham, Judah, and David at least. He has to, you have to show that line in order to confirm the messianic uh, nature of Christ. And so this genealogical record is very important. As a side note, let me just mention, these records were destroyed when the temple was destroyed in AD 70. They no longer exist. No Jew today can trace their lineage back to David. And so it's interesting that just a, a couple of decades after Christ, the records are gone. But they were there long enough to establish uh, Jesus' record, uh, Jesus' ge uh, genealogy. Now, uh, there is a problem that we have to address with the genealogy, uh, and I would be remiss if I just skipped over it. If you compare the genealogy of Jesus found here in Luke 3 with the one in Matthew 1, they are not the same. In fact, they're not even close. Uh, they, they track all the way down from uh, Abraham to David the same. Matthew doesn't go all the way back to Adam. But from Abraham to David is the same. And then from David down to Jesus, they're totally different. Um, and so... What's going on with that? There's a lot of questions about this. Luke follows the line of David's son, Nathan. You see this in the, in the text where he goes uh, from David to the son, Nathan. Matthew goes from David to his other son, Solomon. And from there, it just splits down. And so these are, these are different genealogies. Let me show you an example of this. Matthew 1.16 says, Jacob begat Joseph the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So this is the end of the genealogy of Matthew. And you see that Jesus and then Joseph, and then Joseph's dad was Jacob. See that clearly in Matthew 1.16. Now look at Luke 3.23. Jesus, being as was supposed the son of Joseph, which was the son of Heli. Now hold on a minute. Matthew says Joseph's father was Jacob. Why is Luke saying it's Heli? What's going on here? There's a few possible explanations for this in if you all are really interested, we can talk about this on Wednesday, but you probably won't be. There's a lot of explanations uh, about, about what could be going on here. I think the most compelling and the simplest explanation 
is that, uh, I mean, we all have two different genealogies, right? We have a paternal and a maternal. And so Matthews seems to be giving the genealogy of Joseph, and Luke seems to be giving the genealogy of Mary. Now, we still have a little problem with that because Luke 3.23 says, you know, Mary's not mentioned there. And so we'll, we'll explain that in a minute. But normally women were not mentioned in genealogical records. I'm sorry, ladies, uh, but that was just the way it was in Jewish culture. It was traced through men. And so in, in Luke's account, there's no women mentioned. You'll notice in the lineage, it's all men, the son of the son of the son of. So why would Luke trace back Mary's geneal- genealogy? If it's, if it's normally done through men, why would Luke go through Mary? I think the reason is Jesus had no earthly father. And Luke has made this very clear in his gospel that Jesus was born of a virgin, right? So there was no man involved. It was, it was Mary was the only earthly parent. And so the only technically accurate genealogy, the only real lineage, like bloodline of Jesus would have to go through Mary. So, so Matthew shows us the, the lineage of Joseph, who was his legal parents. He was his adopted dad, you might say, because uh, Jesus was born to the Virgin Mary, whose husband was Joseph. So therefore, Joseph becomes his adopted dad. And so Matthew shows us the genealogy of Jesus through Joseph's line. Uh, and this establishes, by the way, it establishes Jesus's right to rule as king. If, if you've ever traced this through, Jesus is in the lineage of David and Zerubbabel and all these kings. If they weren't under Roman oppression, Jesus would have had the right to rule as king over Israel. And that's proven by Matthew's genealogy. He's in that royal bloodline. But uh, again, we know Jesus was not technically Joseph's real son. He was only Mary's. And so if Luke is trying to give us the actual bloodline lineage of Christ through Mary without mentioning the women, only going through men, I mean, how do you do that? That's kind of a weird workaround. And so it seems like uh, what Luke does here is he says, you'll notice in verse 23, that little phrase, as was supposed, it's an interesting phrase, seems to be, you know, again, this is a totally unique situation that Luke has to try and figure out how to explain. And so He seems to be saying in verse 23, Jesus was thought to be the son of Joseph. That's hinting at the virgin birth of Christ. He's reminding you again, okay, he's not really the son of Joseph. And then he continues through Mary's, his actual bloodline through Heli, which would be Mary's father. And then he goes all the way back to Adam. So you might read it this way. uh, Jesus being as was supposed the son of Joseph, and he really was a descendant of Heli. And then it goes on from there. Okay, now the word son, we'll, we'll talk about this also. You'll notice if you look at your translation, all the way through the genealogy, the word son is in italics. Okay, and if you don't know what the, the italicized words are, that means it's not there in Greek. It's uh, inserted by the translators, normally just to make the sentence sound right in English. Otherwise, you know, kind of sound. Whenever you translate from one language to another, you have to put words in there. Otherwise, the sentence doesn't make sense. And so the, that italicized word son is just the translator's way of of letting you know that this person is a descendant of the other. But technically, it's not always son. Okay, sometimes in the genealogies there are gaps. We see this clearly in Matthew, uh, Matthew one eight. I don't think I put this up there, but you can look this up later. We're told that Uzziah descended from Joram, and if you compare this with the Old Testament list, there's three names missing in between those two. So. Whenever you see those genealogies, if it says this person begat this person or this person was the son of this person, that's not always the, the actual son. Okay, that's not actually what the text says here. Uh, maybe a way to understand it is this person descended from this person. So it could be uh, his grandson or something like that. There could be gaps there. And so this would make sense in Luke 3.23. You notice the difference 
uh, Jesus, being as was supposed the son of Joseph, that's not italicized because that is there. Huios in Greek is there, the word son. But then when it comes to the son of Heli, it is italicized. And so there we would understand Heli to be Jesus' uh, grandfather through Mary. I hope that makes sense. If you have questions about that, I don't know how, how else necessarily to explain it. It's clear in my mind, but I'm not sure if I articulated it clearly. But Matthew seems to be giving us the genealogy of Jesus through his adopted father, Joseph, showing that he's in the royal line. And then Jesus, uh, Luke, gives us the genealogy of Jesus, his true bloodline, which, by the way, also runs through Adam, Abraham, Judah, David. So basically, if you read Matthew's genealogy through Joseph, you might raise the objection, well, wait a minute. Uh, Jesus wasn't really Joseph's son. He's his adopted dad. So is he really a descendant of David and Judah and all those that are prophesied? Well, Luke clears that up because even on Mary's side, he still descends through that bloodline. So Jesus truly is the fulfillment of those prophecies. One more footnote on this uh, just before we move on. Uh, There's a guy named Usher who a long time ago traced back the genealogies and determined that the earth is 6,000 years old. I don't know if you've ever heard that before. He, he came up with this real specific date, like October 4th of 4004 BC was the creation of the world. Uh, that doesn't really work uh, because of, like we talked about earlier, the, the gaps in the genealogies. So basically, if you add up all the math, you know, this person was this, this old when he died and he had this many kids. And so you, you trace that back. You could get at the idea that the earth is like exactly 6,000 or 6,020 years old or something. Uh, we can't be that precise because the genealogies do have gaps. And so Luke, Luke gives us this genealogy showing that Jesus was truly a blood descendant of David and of Judah and of all those that was prophesied that he would be. Now, there's a lot more that could be said about the genealogy, but for today, we'll move on from there. I want to really leave us thinking about the imputed righteousness of Christ. That's really the main takeaway I want you to get from this. And maybe, the, maybe this is new for some folks. You hear about the substitutionary death of Christ all the time, that Jesus died on the cross and bore our sins, but we don't talk, I don't think, enough about the fact that the only way we have hope of eternal life and, and forgiveness of sins truly is if the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. Jesus did everything that God expected a perfect human being to do. And that not only grants us righteousness in the eyes of God, but it also provides us an example to follow. And so in an argument from the greater to the lesser, if Jesus had to be baptized, how much more do we as sinners need to be baptized? Uh, If Jesus, as we saw in verse 21, if Jesus needed to pray, how much more do we need to pray? If Jesus needed the Holy Spirit to empower his ministry, how much more do we need to depend on the filling of the Holy Spirit? And finally, as we've seen in verse 22, Jesus pleased the Father. That life of perfect obedience and righteousness guided by the Holy Spirit pleased God. And that's also an example for us to follow. As we increasingly live our lives righteously, following the example of Christ and the prodding of the Holy Spirit, we please our Father. Now when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also being baptized and praying, the heaven was opened. And the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. So thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. We hope the message you just heard was helpful to you. It means a lot to us that you would join us for this podcast. For more information about our church and meeting times, visit lbcmiller.com 
or call us at 219-885-9303. We would love to hear from you.